0: Things. and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit about and talk BS, Beatles Stuff, on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JJ McQuarrie and I'm here with my co-host Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. Ready to talk about the album this week? Absolutely. Well,
1: probably as much to talk about albums in general as the album,
0: but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, this week we're not going to be talking about an individual song, but we're going to be talking about the album as a whole, and um, possibly brushing up against a few bits and pieces that we've talked about in, in previous episodes in terms of cultural context and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, this is really just an excuse to talk about it as a whole piece rather than all the individual tracks. So And, um, and can I just say, yeah. worth
1: pointing out that we are not exactly upholders of consistency. So it may well be that we've forgotten some of the things that we've said, and some of the things we may say today... May contradict some of um, uh, some earlier podcasts, but you know what? I don't care.
0: Well, if you're coming here for consistency and accuracy, you're really listening to the wrong podcast, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, like, let's kick things off, shall we? Um, what do you think? Of please, please Me, Andrew? Um Yay, it's great. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, okay, so so where do you start? I mean, it's, it, it's quite a hard thing to. Um, to, to kick in with. And, and I wonder if one of the best ways of starting is to think about when, when you first heard it and what you first thought. Now, we're both of a similar age. We both probably started to become aware of pop music and chart music at the tail end of the 70s and then the early part of, of the 80s. Um, The first album I bought was ABC's The Lexicon of Love, which is an absolute Stonewall classic. But one of the key things about that is its production. You know, Trevor Horn, very, very slick, um, beautifully produced, a huge sound. So then a few years later, sort of then discovering this as an album, which is quite sparse and empty and in terms of instrumentation, just the guys in the room basically you know it it can it can take a while to um to to warm to it and i think it probably did take me a while to warm to some of these songs and you know there's a temptation to 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 sort of to skate over a few of the slighter bits and therefore you're kind of at risk of not seeing the whole album and what about you do you remember the first album you bought
0: I think the first album I bought was either Sgt. Pepper or Band on the Run, and I'm not 100% sure which one of those it was. I'd, I bought um, sort of a few albums before that. I bought a few classical albums, um, a couple of Barbara Dixon albums, because Barbara Dixon rules, um, and stuff like that. But my first like, proper kind of album album, I think I, I think it was Band on the Run. But, um, but for the credibility and for the sake of this podcast, I should probably try and maintain that it was Sgt. Pepper, because that sounds more convincing, even although it's probably not true. Anyway. Um, so Barbara Dixon didn't release proper albums, is that what you're saying? Well, she's she's a folk singer rather than a pop singer or a rock singer or something like that, particularly those early albums, which are really, there's some really good folk music on there. Uh, this is sort of before the kind of whole Ronnie carpet cliche, and I'm not going to go down a, a Barbara Dixon rabbit hole, I promise, but still, very, very worthwhile um, artist. Still. So, so yes.
1: what what drew you then to you know Band on the Run slash Sgt. Pepper?
0: Well, I think probably it was broad familiarity with the material um, as that kind of pop culture background radiation. And although it wasn't necessarily played an awful lot around that kind of early 80s period, um, it was definitely still something which I think was very much um, just around as as something that you would hear, whether it was in a shopping centre or whether it was on... Yeah, you know, my parents listened to radio too when we would drive to drive to school. So you would probably hear the you know tracks there, that kind of stuff. Um, and how about old? How, how old would you have been? Ooh, probably about. 11 maybe 12 that kind of that kind of reach i I bought quite a few singles before then i had quite a few 45s sort of blondie and adam and the ants and a lot of that kind of a lot of that kind of stuff definitely abba no question about that um so there would have been some of that stuff but i never really got into buying albums until i was just that little bit older and and i i think it was also because it was a lot of money um for for little old me at the time it would have been a solid investment. I would be buying something that I knew I was going to basically like the whole of. So that was, that was sort of informed in the choice. I was very, very meticulous, very, very weirdly thought out rationale between buying these out, or I could just buy something which is in the charts and everybody else likes, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll go for the old classic rock. That'll do me just fine. The buying. cost, the cost element
1: is something we'll touch on when we, we then start, you know, going back to uh, the early sixties. Um, but it is, you know, at least you were sort of engaging with you know contemporary music because I think it would be quite unusual unless there is that sort of huge parental influence to to then go back and and, and, and sort of listen to lots of stuff from um, you know the 60s when when you're just like 10 or 11 years old um, because I don't even think that that radio 2 were, were
0: playing it a huge amount at that point. Not a not a vast amount, but the other thing that would have definitely have been an influence on that was um, Paul McCartney as a contemporary recording artist and not as a legacy artist because yeah. he's only you know at, th- at that kind of time we're only talking about like ten or twelve years yeah um out of the Beatles um that early eighties he's had his big kind of comeback with. Um, Coming up, uh, tug of war and pipes of peace. Yes. You know, they were all huge, huge hits. So I would have been aware of him as as a sort of contemporary artist, as well as this kind of legacy guy who was in some other band from like ten or fifteen years ago. So that definitely would have been that definitely would have been a, a, an influencing factor as well. And one of the things I've come to be very I used to be very self critical of my own kind of music taste. As like, oh, well, it's terribly mainstream, and uh, but yeah, I do have fairly mainstream tastes. I'm doing a Beatles podcast, um, mm. but actually, what I really love is I love melody. Um, and Paul McCartney is an incredibly gifted melodist. Yeah. So even even in songs which aren't necessarily his best works, um, of which there are a fair few in that kind of early '80s bracket, <clears throat> for course, um, he can still construct a really good melody. Uh, he's and, and and a very clear, very memorable kind of piece of work. And and so that would probably have played into it as well.
1: I did buy. Um... Tug of War the single. I mean I do have the album uh Tug of War. It's one of the few albums I I still actually um you know retain on vinyl. Um but I did buy the single. I can't remember um roughly when I would have bought the album. It may have been that I bought it a year or two down the line, but I did buy the single Tug of War. But even then I'm not sure if that was my first engagement with Paul McCartney. I remember being um struck by Take It Away, which was from the The Tug of War album, and I like that as, as a kid. And I think it was um because Ringo's in that video as well. So I must have, have sort of um seen that and um you know that I've got other cultural associations with Take It Away that need not detain us. Um and you know hey pod fans can't remember if I mentioned this before but certainly the first single I remember possessing was a copy of Mull of Kintyre, which was won at a fete in a village in Brittany in, you know, probably, let's say the earliest that would have been would have been 78, but probably about 1980. Um, so, you know, would have become aware. And, and the chances are that I would have seen and heard Mull of Kintyre when it came out, because you couldn't really have escaped that. Um, if it was, you know, you had the TV on or the radio on as, as a kid when, when we were growing, up, because that was a, a massive thing. And it's funny you mentioned the, the Ronnie Corbett thing, because chances are that the two Ronnies probably did a parody of of something like Milo Kintyre at some point. So, you know, those parodies, when when they are done, they do help the original to seep into your own consciousness. And that does sound quite pretentious, but, you know, I'm sticking
0: with it. Yeah no I mean you're not wrong and I think that I think that is kind of what I'm getting at about this this idea of, of having those artists as sort of contemporary recording artists rather than just the kind of fragmented remains of of this band um, and when it comes to I, I've never been a massive fan of John Lennon's solo work if if truth be told I've always I've always kind of um, leaned more towards uh, McCartney as a solo uh, artist um will we'll, gently move on from uh, George and Ringo at this point but um, but uh, you know as a as a, uh, don't get me wrong obviously all things Must Press is, is is brilliant i'm not going to disparage that anyway but he we, we've definitely on. we've definitely mentioned that before but i think i'm right in saying that Mull of Kintyre is the biggest still the biggest selling british single that isn't a re-release or a charity Okay. Uh, that's really something yeah okay if you if you take out um, things like um, uh, candle in the wind or Bohemian Rhapsody which has been released uh, multiple times yeah. of course of course they pile up and and, and they sell more yeah um, but I believe that Mull of Kintyre is still the biggest selling uh, non-charity re release single in in chart history that's quite something. It's really, uh, it really is. And and all that stuff feeds in. So yeah, you're quite right. You would have, you know, he would have been around on top of the pops. He would have been around, you know, on the radio or whatever, doing interviews or chat shows or whatever. So it was just something that was kind of there. Yeah. And of, of course, one of the other
1: things that came with it was uh, a lot of discussion about Linda. Yeah. and 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 I think quite early on, I say early on for me, I can remember that, you know, there was a lot of um, you know chat about how she was just there because she's Paul's wife. That she didn't play any role whatsoever. In fact, you know, just was out of tune and couldn't play the keyboard. You know, clearly not true. I'm mean, not saying that she was Mozart, but um, you know, clearly Paul McCartney would not have kept her around if that was the case. Um, I mean, and musically, obviously, you know, he would have still loved her, you know, <laughs> but that's great. Um, you know, but good, you, good you can remember that cruelty, which of course is is a subject that's come up a lot recently when uh, watching, I mean, not that I've seen it yet, I'm, I'm still holding off, uh, you know, get back, suddenly people have, have, have sort of thought, oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah okay, maybe, maybe she wasn't uh, to blame for splitting the Beatles uh, and, you know, and all of those sorts of things. Um, but of course you know double fantasy i can remember my 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 dance mum owning double fantasy i don't know when she bought it um but it would have been at the very early ages. and by that i mean i don't know whether she would have bought it before or after john lennon died um and yeah let's face it the yoko ono parts are not the
0: the strongest parts I'm not really sure that John Lennon parts are the strongest parts in that album either. It's a bit. It's it's a bit. I, I I'm. I'm. It's one of those things. that I'm really glad he was in a happy place. Yeah. Um, you know, at the, at the at obviously terrible that he died or whatever, but I'm glad that he was in a happy place and that he seemed to have largely resolved um, a lot of the kind of um, psychological trauma of his life, if you want to put it that way. Um, but a lot of those songs in Double Fantasy are pretty saccharine.
1: Yeah. 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 Now I, I sort of um, you know we we've gone down that rabbit hole um, primarily um, as a means to get into the question. Then because you know, I said it was actually quite a difficult. Listen to go from some of those those ultra produced records of the the early nineteen eighties with new technologies emerging to then go back and to listen to Please Please Me. Um, I, I wonder what, what it must have been like then for you listening to Sergeant Pepper, for example, or you know um, Abba. And then going back and listening to please please me. Well, I mean
0: certainly you can draw a line between the kind of instrumentation that uh, George Martin does um, and the kind of way that that sort of pop then contemporary pop bands like Abba were Produced, there's a lot of there's, there's a very clear, very direct line, and I, I mean, it's 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 um, you know, hardly the world's greatest revo- uh, revelation to say that you know, George Martin is incredibly influential in the way yeah. that he kind of develops strings and 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 orchestration for pop bands. And, and a band like ABBA do use a lot of that, and so there's th- so the line between those kind of acts is sort of fairly clear. Please Please Me was definitely the last Beatles album I bought, I it was I which I, I got, I think. I may have mentioned this before but I got more or less out of a sense of completion yeah. um, and the way that I kind of listened to the Beatles was kind of uh, reverse chronological order so starting off with um, Sergeant Pepper and then I think I think I probably got Abbey Road after that Okay. and then just ended up kind of working backwards not really through any I think there was probably a couple of uh, compilations as well like uh, Oldies but Goodies Yeah. Um, and I think maybe I had 67 to 70 at one point I definitely haven't now in vinyl but I think maybe as a teenager I had that at some yeah. point and then it vanished um, so I ended up kind of working backwards through revolver uh through rubber sole and then eventually uh, getting to sort of please please me I thought well you know I've got I might as well I've got I've basically got everything else it's, it might be might be time to you know kind of rip off the band-aid and and, and get get the first one <laughs> uh, which I bought on cassette in WH Smith's and uh, sucky Hill Street in Glasgow uh, for some reason, I've very very vivid memory of buying it. Maybe it was because it was the last piece of the puzzle, um, but I kind of, because I had kind of de-evolved through the the band's run, um, it wasn't as harsh uh, a kind of jump as you might think, because I'd already been through Beatles for Sale and then with the Beatles and then finally getting to Please Please Me. So it was it wasn't too bad, but at the same time, you could really. Or I could really hear, you know, just how primitive this was. Not just in terms of the fact that it's like four guys standing there, but you know, the, the fact that it's recorded onto what doesn't sound like very expensive uh, two track tape. Yeah. Um, I think I had a fairly crappy copy in any case, but even so, it was you know you could hear how primitive it was, and it was kind of it was it was kind of more interesting to me at that time as a sort of abstract. Concept mm. than it was as an album itself, so I would I listened to it quite a few times, sort of learned it off by heart, put it back on my shelf, and didn't really think that much more about it. Yeah. What about yourself?
1: Well, um, yeah, you know, again, it was that that sort of sense of completion. I can't remember, um, you know, the order in which I bought it, but I think it probably came before buying with the Beatles and Beatles for sale. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I'd, I'd heard a reasonable amount of this, and, and again, listener may have mentioned this before, but there was um, at some point in the mid-80s, I think maybe 84, 85, and I've, I've tried to find it, but um, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, it's quite hard, it's very hard, and they be impossible to track down. Um, I think someone like Andy Peebles did a documentary on on BBC Radio 1 about the early Beatles songs and may even have been about the Beatles in America um, can't find any reference to it but you know it, it sort of sticks in my mind listening to you know Kansas City hey hey my mic I remember that being on there and I can remember the old thing about recording it off the radio and then listening back and it being you know sort of fascinating to hear those old songs and therefore being aware of their, their cultural value because Radio One was doing a documentary about them so that said hey this is something important and worth listening to now, of course, the reason why it's... I mean, apart from the fact it's probably disappeared from from all records, uh, the reason why it's impossible to do a Google search and find anything related to Andy Peebles and the Beatles is because, do you know, here's your trivia... Uh,
0: I don't, actually, know.
1: He did the last interview with John Lennon.
0: Ah, of course. Yeah, so yeah. you know, if
1: you you try and Google Andy Andy Peebles and the Beatles, you have to sift through about three hundred million pages of um, <laughs> the last interview with John Lennon, or yeah, interviewed him the I, day before. Ah, oh, that's morning. so
0: annoying because I recognised that name. Yeah, I right, couldn't right, put my finger right. on it. <laughs> I mean, it may well be that that I'm I'm getting
1: the wrong guy, but um, but you know, anyway, um, you know. So it it it's kind of there, and I think we probably would have heard. Twist and Shout at some point. It is pre-Ferris Bueller uh, at this point. Um, maybe, maybe Please Please Me probably Love Me Do, but I'm not quite sure when they would have cropped up because these these weren't records that were in my my parents' record collection. So my nan had um, Double Fantasy, but she didn't have any Beatles. She had lots of, um, you know, Frank Snarcher, Jack Jones. Dad had some Buddy Holly singles not albums um he quite like um tom paxton sort of folk singer uh, american folk slash protest singer um you know bits and bobs like that but but there were no beatles uh singles around um you know it was it, very odd to to sort of think you know I don't really know what kind of music they they actually listen to because I, I I can't really remember them sticking things on you know thinking, I know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna stick a record on and, and have a listen to it just just didn't happen it's a bit weird so um you know when it was that I actually listened to it yeah you know, I reckon probably mid to late 80s Um yeah, possibly as, as my, my record collection was starting to, to go beyond the bounds of the, the, the contemporary um, and also as, as I, I was starting to you know, buy a lot more secondhand records uh, as well from Glorious Beano's uh, down by Croydon Market.
0: Yeah, you took you introduced me to Beano's, and that was a great place. And I'm sad it's not there anymore. It was it was really amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, same. The, the the more I kind of expanded my record collection, and I'd spent a lot of time in, in kind of um, charity shops and stuff, picking up cheap LPs for like sort of fifty pence or a pound or whatever, just as a way to get exposure to kind of new music. And 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 I definitely picked up a couple of McCartney albums doing that. I'm pretty sure I got imagined that way as well. I think. Um, so there would, I wouldn't necessarily go out specifically looking for Beatles or ex-Beatles albums, yeah. but they kind of they were kind of there by default as well. And that was a, kind of a really good time. That kind of mid to late 80s was a really good time if you were kind of into um, buying LPs because it was it coincided with the launch of the compact disc. So suddenly everybody was junking a lot of their LPs, which is why I spent a lot of time in charity shops yeah. and, and kind of rebuying. So I think... Yeah. I want to say 87 was when the Beatles stuff started okay. to get released on CD. Uh, it might have been 86, uh, but I have a feeling it's 87. Um, and so, of course, this brand-new, bleeding-edge uh, technology of compact discs, you know, that's all anybody wanted. So if you, you could start to pick up a lot of vinyl suddenly when as people kind of got rid of it in, in, in preference for this new format. Um, and that's something I wholly took advantage of. This
1: could be a... Um a wholly um, created memory, but um, if memory serves me right, they weren't all released um, in one go. No, you're correct. You're correct. Um, and and I'm trying to remember. There was there was certainly a big deal about Sergeant Pepper being released on CD. I, I, um, did they release them in order, or did they start with Sergeant Pepper and then work around?
0: They released them in order, if I I believe. Um, but I I I had that Sergeant Pepper. Um, CD and I I think it was I think it was because it was released in 87 so it was 20 years after the original release Mm -hmm. I think that's why they made such a big fuss it. you know it was 20 years ago today Um, and so it was the one that came with the deluxe packaging and the the little cardboard thing that told you who everybody was and the cover and, and all that kind of stuff I had that CD until I think a year ago when I finally finally got rid of most of my CD collections or maybe a couple of years ago um, but yeah but they made yeah they made a big fuss over the Sgt. pepper release because I think that was 87 and so yeah 20 years on
1: right okay yeah, I do remember owning that the most of the rest I had on uh, cassette um presumably if I was buying them in Beano's, that would have been the same as you where people were discarding them as they yeah. were as they were buying them on um, on CD the only exceptions to that were, um no I think i've still got them down there um the white album and let it be which i bought on vinyl i think i i think apart from Sgt pepper i don't think i've ever bought them on on cd actually which is which is weird um but there you go there you go that's that's a, a weird old thing um well done we've got to 20 odd minutes and Haven't actually really mentioned the album we're we're meant to be talking about. So (laughs) uh, pretty good uh, even by our standard. Congrats again, Mexicans and Swedes, who've made it this far. Um, Yeah, it is a funny thing actually. We we sort of talk about this as an album when you know the heyday of the album really was the 1970s, especially the rock album um, when it it got big and it got bloated and they sold in huge numbers really, albums, you know, and and in fact, let's perhaps try and call them what they would have been called at the time, you know, long players, LPs, Um, you know, they they weren't a big thing. And you only really have to look at the kind of things that were were hitting the the top of the charts to to just get a sense that, okay, so they may have been selling in, in reasonable numbers. But these are not really the kind of things that are being bought by kids, and and you know today we we sort of think of the the pop market um, as really being aimed at kids, teenagers, um, at young people while they're developing their music taste. Yeah,
0: um, I mean one of the I mean. <laughs> Particularly if you're talking about sort of please please me and that that kind of early sixties period, the the whole uh, we've we've we have definitely brushed up against this before. Uh, but the whole development of the album as a form is one of those things which is still. I mean, it's not even really in its in its uh, infancy at this stage. It it's, it's something which just doesn't really exist, and it is one of the things that, that that obviously please please me helps to to call into um call into existence. It was either. It's either 1960 or 1961 that the 78 RPM was discontinued. So that's how old, you know, things are. That's how primitive, um, you know, recordings are when it comes to, you know, trying to get music out there. We're just barely beyond the 78s. Um, It's sort of almost... I mean, one of the things about doing this podcast, which I, I must say, is that my appreciation of Please Please Me as an album has gone up since going back to revisit it. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's gone up a vast amount, but again, again, in that slightly kind of um, intellectualized way, it, it is really interesting to see it as a kind of as a piece of uh, history, as as something which kind of, it's. I mean, you know, you can start having you mentioned the 70s you start having whole conversations about you know well what's the first proper album what's the first concept album is it Sgt. pepper is it is it pet sounds do you want to go further back um some frank sinatra sometimes gets credit for it yeah, in the yeah, small yeah. hours of the morning um you know all that kind of stuff but it, it shows just what kind of nascent form everything is just how much yeah um everything still has to develop and and Above and beyond its status as the first Beatles album, it's it is a significant moment in the development of music simply because it's one of the things that helps to call that concept of an album into into its existence. It's, it, even although it is just you know a bunch of songs stuck together, it's also more than just a bunch of songs together, and and you don't really get that with any other artist at mm. this point. I think
1: it's it's interesting as well that we're only looking at a top twenty. You know, whereas even in the the you know the singles chart, you you know you're starting to talk about a, a top forty and making the top forty, not making the top forty of of having placings outside the top forty, but really here we're only looking at a small number of albums being released, and it's it's you know it's it's quite fascinating to see that some of these albums stick around for a long, long time, and presumably and rather surprisingly not exactly on on massive sales either. I mean there's talk these days isn't there you only need you know x thousands to get a number one in in the singles chart. But actually albums today still sell huge numbers. Yeah, you know, admittedly, yeah you know, we are talking about the Adele's and the Ed Sheerans and the Greatest Showman soundtrack uh type albums of you know of the world but you know you could you could look at you know the 2010s and go down the list and, and still find you know the 25th top-selling albums probably sold about three million copies uh, in the UK. Here we're talking, which as a percentage of the population is is really significant. Now, of course, that doesn't tell you the the means by which they've they've purchased it, whether it's CD or whether it's streaming, um, you know, a digital download, um, or indeed whether they've even gone through and they've listened to the whole thing. But it's just fascinating to see that people do still buy those albums in huge numbers. And you actually, if you go back to the early sixties, you're not talking about those numbers at all. Um, you know, we are blighted um, by, and I'm not even going to pretend that it was okay at the time because, frankly, people should have known it wasn't okay at the time by the the black and white Minstrel show in the UK, uh, which is just not something I would encourage anyone to 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 Google. But basically, you know, for decades in Britain, hugely popular entertainment series involved blackface. Um and and that's it, really. Um, you know, you can imagine just how ridiculous it is that even into the 70s the black and white minstrel show was one of the most popular variety shows on, on television. But the first black and white minstrel album was the first album, and we're talking early sixties here, to pass the UK sales total of a hundred thousand, which is just seems absolutely minuscule. Yeah, and it seems a shame that it's something like that 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 holds that kind of record. Fortunately, it's it is a historical footnote, and there were people who were campaigning against it at the time. Um, and fortunately, the overwhelming majority of people these days would look at it and go, Yeah, maybe not but it is still that footnote in the record books it was hugely popular at the time not amongst the kids though because let's face it the kids probably weren't buying albums
0: well no and and as you said it's if what what is also remarkable about that period of time is is how few albums were actually being released. And you start to see that changing a little bit towards the end of 1963, where you start to see kind of the emergence of uh, the Mercy Beat band. So uh, uh, Freddie and the Dreamers have an album out there, uh, Jerry and the uh, Pacemakers have albu- have an album out there. So you you do start to see the shift at the end of, of 1963 with, uh, with those kind of artists um, putting albums out. But, you know, um, the... Kind of artists that were able to um, put out albums, and indeed afford to put out albums. We mustn't, we mustn't get yeah. away from the fact that you know it costs money to record an album. But you know, Dean Martin has an album out. Frank, Bo- uh, sorry, Pat Boone has an album out. Tony Bennett has an album out. Sammy Davis Junior has an album out. It's all these kind of um, holdovers from the long fifties yeah. that are still. Um, you know, kind of. I was gonna say clogging up the album charts. Maybe that's maybe that's unfair if you're a big fan of '50s critters. But you know, um, they're they're the ones who are, are kind of dominating that, and it's going to change unbelievably quickly. All that stuff just falls away. It's it's basically not true anymore. In 1964, those artists will continue to have um, hits sort of throughout the decade. But but basically, '63 remains that that dividing line before they're really very much dominant afterwards. More or less, not. So,
1: so what's interesting about the, the week that Please Please Me goes into the charts is that there is an element of diversity, but not a massive amount of diversity. You have two comedy albums. You've got Steptoe and Son, and you've got That Was The Week That Was, um, you know, in, in the charts, in the top 20. You've got some jazz, Stan Getz and Charlie Birds, jazz samba. You've got um Dwayne Eddy, for example, Dwayne Eddy has you know quite a lot of cultural cachet today amongst guitar players, Um, you know whether or not the art of noise helped with that in in the eighties. Um, it's not impossible. Not impossible. You've, you, the, the crickets appear several times. Once with with Bobby V. Once with the Buddy Holly story, and also there's a um, another Buddy Holly album that debuts that week. Now this is of course a few years after Buddy Holly actually died, so we've we've got that to contend with. We've got Brenda Lee. We've got Richard Chamberlain Sings, for example, and, and this is just in in you know 11 to 20 um, at the moment, and we also have two albums from um, the George Mitchell, Mitchell Minstrels, so the Black and White Minstrel shows, both of which have been in the charts for a long period of time. Uh, number 18, on stage with the George Mitchell Minstrels uh, for 25 weeks, but at number 13, Down from number 11, The Black and White Minstrel Show, which has been on the chart for 124 weeks. Unbelievable. And yet, you then go up into the the top 10 and you get something that is perhaps a little bit more representative of of what we think of at the time. You've got Elvis Presley. You've got Frank Sinatra. You've got no friend of the Beatles, Frank Ifield. You have uh, West Side Story, um, over a year in the charts, South Pacific, about five years in the charts. Um, and you have the shadows, and at number one, you have Cliff Richard. And well, Cliff and the shadows, you know, so it's, it, it's sort of quite interesting. The, the, the sort of there is a range, and it would have appeared to have been a range at the time. But as we look back now, it's not a particularly massive range. But the Beatles should stick out like a like a sore thumb there, you know, because obviously in comparison to to Cliff Richard, Cliff Richard might have seemed vaguely challenging at the time, but clearly wasn't. And the, Be- um, the Beatles understood think? that. <laughs> well, okay, the, the Beatles understood that. Elvis was going through his his film post army phase. And had really lost that that sort of, you know, that teen fantasy edge as well. And then there's the Beatles. They sit amongst that, and yet they sit completely apart from it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have failed to mention um, one piece of music which was released in 1963, which is a, a crime I will not allow go, to go unpunished. Uh, Yakety Sax is released in 1963. Boots Randolph, I love that piece of music and I want it played at my funeral. And that is not a joke. Well, I, I want Yakety Sax at my funeral. If you're still around and I've kicked the bucket, you better bloody make sure it happens. That's all I'm saying to you um but yeah it's it's but again like that's an odd kind of album to be in in that in that context as well but it's also worth um looking at what's coming up as well you know the rolling stones released their first single yeah. in the middle of 1963 uh, the kinks are formed in 1963 bob marley and the whalers are formed in 1963 so there's a lot of kind of interesting stuff which is kind of on the way up but which isn't in any sense kind of uh you know going to be breaking through for the next sort of year or two before, you know, those, those kind of impact. Anyway, yeah. Even the Stones really 60, 64, I want to be your man. That's kind of, that, that kind of gets them off to their start. But uh, yeah, there's, so there's, there's a lot of stuff which is kind of bubbling under there and, and those God awful mercy beat groups that I mentioned earlier.
1: Okay. So, so here's, here's the interesting thing for me um, about that is that if you look down at the list of number one albums in 1962, uh, first it looks like there's a lot of them but then when you have a closer look there's only a few and they seem to rotate in and out of the number one spot which then sort of goes with the suggestion that there aren't that many albums being released and that you know if an album is continually returning to the charts it's top of the charts it's probably not doing it on on the back of huge sales so for example West Side Story gets to the number one spot six times during 1962 and four of them it's for one week only. And and so for example, you get this period in September, October, November, where West Side Story is number one. Um, well actually sorry. Yeah, yeah, West Side Story number one, then the best of Ball, Barber and Bilk, your friend Acker Bilk, My friend. then then West Side Story comes back for three weeks, then for one week, the best of ball, barber and bilk, then out of the shadows, Cliff in the Shadows, for three weeks, West Side Story one week, out of the shadows one week. George Mitchell Minstrels two weeks, West Side Story one week, Out of the Shadows one week, Black and White Minstrels two weeks, then into 1963, West Side Story one week, and then Out of the Shadows two weeks. So it's that continual rotation. But they're bookended by, you know, go back to to February, where Elvis with a blue Hawaii starts a run of 16 weeks at number one. And then at the other end, Cliff and the Shadows at the end of January 63 for 14 weeks and number one. What's interesting about that is that once that run is over, you then have the Beatles at number one for fifty-one consecutive weeks, thirty of which would please please me and then 21 with with The Beatles. So you only have five, well, actually six, because the George Minstrels being the, the crossover in 63, six different albums at the top of the charts in 1963, that then becomes three albums in 1964, With The Rolling Stones, and then A Hard Day's Night, well actually sorry it is four because With The Beatles became number one in December 63, 21 weeks takes you up to the end of April but then three new albums, The Rolling Stones, Hard Day's Night, Beatles for Sale. You know and you can then see from that how certain bands are then just taking over and that sort of thing continues up until about 68, 69, where you then get a lot more albums that are becoming number one for a week at a time or two weeks at the time. Where you get, you know, Cream and Jethro Tull, you know, bands like that. You can see how perhaps by the end of the decade, more people have invested in the album and more record companies have realized that they can sell huge numbers of this more expensive product and it becomes a much more marketable thing.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. And the way that, um, again, that sort of the way that that whole development works is, as as you said, it, it, it kind of kicks off with, with Please Please Me because the, the run that that album has at the top of the charts is astounding when you look back historically at everything else which is there. Um, and the fact that the, it was only themselves that were able to, to displace it also speaks huge kind of volumes as, as to just how quickly the band become this kind of in sort of indomitable kind of cultural fixture that's just never ever going to go away I know in 1964 in America uh, the Beatles are at number one uh, with various different singles for half a year, which is just astounding. And you know, of course, that's that's really the moment the 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 takes off in in America. But yeah, it's it's for half a year, one band. That's that's really something. And and so so we 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 do see that development coming through in the singles charts as well.
1: But then, if you 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 know, you bear in mind that you've got fifty two weeks of Please Please Me and with the Beatles, and then you've got twenty eight weeks of Hard Day's Night and then Beatles for Sale at number one for the first time you know those are consecutive with just 12 weeks of the Rolling Stones splitting those up so um you've got what um, uh, 51, uh, 72, 79 weeks um that, that has just 12 weeks of the Rolling Stones in between so what's that 91 weeks where they're they're Top of the chart for 79. Apologies, maths fans, if I'm slightly out on my, my basic edition there, but I'm doing this on the hoof. You know, and I mean that's that's phenomenal. Yeah, it will never happen again. Um and yeah, it's well, I mean, for many reasons it won't happen again. Um, I think that whole sort of you know early development of the album allows that kind of thing to happen, but the effect that the Beatles have allows that sort of thing to happen too. Um, I just can't imagine another artist ever, um, well, for a start, ever producing um, that
0: quantity of
1: albums in such a short period of time uh, to be able to do that sort of thing.
0: No, I mean, like, like maybe Prince could have done at one point because he was just, on, <laughs> just an unstoppable album yeah. generating machine. But, you know, like, that's that's pretty much the exception that that proves the rule. Um, and, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of fascinating to sort of go back and, and sort of spend time seeing how that development uh sort of comes around and and you know i mean people very much talk these days of the kind of the golden age of the album very much being over um i think that might be something which is is rather overstated you you mentioned kind of the adels and the ed sheerans or whatever of the world and clearly clearly there is still a, a hunger for those albums and and not just for um individual songs on 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 various uh, streaming platforms but to see where it all began to to sort of take these um you know, yeah. few songs, which to be fair, we've been comparatively harsh on over the course yeah. of this podcast yeah. so far. I think I think that's probably not an unfair thing to say. Yeah. Um, but you know, to take to take these songs and to just you know, even even if you want, to, or and indeed as we have quibbled with the individual sort of merits of, of each song, it's still it's the starting gun in all of that. And for that alone, it's it's absolutely an album that that kind of deserves respect for that we haven't even talked about things like the cover or or all that which is that kind of weird amalgam of being very old-fashioned and incredibly forward-looking like the photograph is such a i mean i hate to use the word iconic i despise that word but i don't really know what synonym to use for it but it's such a such a defining piece of of uh imagery for the band and yet the lettering you know with these hits such as uh, you know please please me and that's such a traditional old-fashioned style which even by the next album will have been completely abandoned and so it's it's got that kind of slightly Again, it's that sort of transitional phase as we move out of the way that things were done and move into the way that they're now going to be done for forever and ever amen. It's it's it's, it's kind of a, fasc- a fascinatingly transitional sort of piece of work.
1: So there's 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 two elements that that I'll sort of throw in at that point. Uh, um, some of my cursory research is may I may have got this from Wikipedia. Um, yeah, indicates that that since I think it's two thousand and nine, please please me has still sold. Uh, or been downloaded, whatever, uh, 300,000 times. Okay. Which is pretty darn impressive. Yeah, that's not oh. <laughs> you know, um... Although, of course, what we will never know is the reaction of those 300,000 people. Um, presumably quite a, a significant percentage of those will be people who've bought it on another format at one point and want to listen to it on, on some form of digital device. But the other thing that's worth saying to then go back and, and to actually bring the conversation back to the album itself is, of course, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of victims of our own format here. That when you start looking at each song individually... Sometimes it's quite hard to then talk about it in a positive way, and all you end up doing is is considering the flaws. and And sometimes it takes listening to it in a different way to kind of bring out some of those um, some of those better features. So obviously, I've listened to it. Um, as a, a complete album in the last couple of days and you, you get a sense of, of, kind of like the rhythm and the pace and where the pace is broken up um, and deliberately in order to get that that change of tempo where perhaps you're bringing in a different singer in order to add that variety where you get that that variety again of, of, of song in order to offer something that is a complete product and something in line with the times. But actually the, the overriding point a moment at which i thought yeah i've been a bit harsh was actually for for context sake um just got back from a um covid busting trip to um america um to visit with the in-laws um which we've not been able to do for a considerable period of time and on a drive um you know away from there is leaving it towards um driving towards las cruces in new mexico Um, and fiddling around on the radio trying to get some decent non-country and non-churchy radio stations.
0: Very diplomatically phrased. Yeah,
1: thank you. Um, Came across, um, you know, Beatles 95.9 FM, all Beatles radio. And the song that was playing as we tuned into that was Chains. And it sounded so good with the mountains in the background you know, the you know, desert mountains, um, you know, Las Cruces wasn't quite on the horizon at that stage. It sounded really good. You know, that could have been the the quality of, of the speakers, it could be, you know, the um helping to, you know, present the um the song in a way that perhaps I hadn't listened to it in a while, because you know, I haven't invested in particularly great speakers, I'm not an audiologist uh, in that respect. Um and um, i it, it just thought, oh this this sounds this sounds really good. Okay, I like it. Yeah, great song. Works really, really well. And you know, the other half um who was driving at the time, um, you know, um really seemed to to actually engage with the song. You know, we then started a conversation obviously about how you know it was written for uh one of those all-girl um black groups of the early sixties and then conversation then went on to, to the Beatles influences. So it was interesting how that, that then opened up um a wider discussion um about the album itself. But it was just that reminder that actually they were really good at what they did. For all the sparseness of the production and the recording equipment, um the songs were good. The performances were were fantastic. Um you know these people knew what they were doing even if they were at the early stage of their recording career and hugely inexperienced, oh my word! There's a lot of technical ability in there that is is just fantastic. Now, how much of that, you know, the mixing, for example, you know they they were absent for would have been, you know, Jeff Emmerich was it Norman Smith and and and, and George uh, yeah. Martin, you know, how much of an, an influence they had on that? Well, maybe they needed the guiding influence at that stage in order to to get them over the um, that particular barrier. But it works, and especially then when you compare it to some of the um, some of the other albums released at the time, you know, which which even though they might be names that are held with a certain reverence, kind of sound a bit dull in comparison. It yeah,
0: works. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Um... A hostage to a format would have been a great title for this podcast, <laughs> <by the way. laughs> I feel we might miss a trick there. Oh well never mind. Um, but no yeah I mean you're quite right and I, I mean I do think that's why it's important for us to have these episodes about the album as a whole rather than just discussing the songs because um, you know I mean, I know it's a kind of cliche expression, but that that the expression you know the whole is more than the sum of its parts. I mean for an album like please please me, um that's certainly true when we when we eventually get up to um the white album i think there's probably no album that is more uh the whole is greater than the sum of its part than, than the white album um so i do think it is you know a valuable thing to be able to take an episode like this and and put it into that context um and and sort of talk around it in a way that isn't just sort of breaking it down into the into the individual songs even though that's what we're here for yeah
1: yeah I, it's funny actually that the um Please please me isn't one of the very top um, selling Beatles albums. you know so clearly it was very, very popular at the time, but they went on and they surpassed it in, in huge numbers fairly quickly. Um, you know you might be surprised to know that um, of the best-selling albums of the 1960s in the UK with the Beatles is, is at number three. Beatles for sale was at number six please please me is at number 12 yeah you could certainly argue that it's a significantly better album than say Beatles for sale which is a bit tired and and weary looking forward to getting onto that one um, but it, it it's one of those things that, that what we could do is sort of sit around and go well let's let's think about its its cultural impact. And its cultural impact is a lot more obvious than the the uh, two of the albums that that, that follow it. Um, now, whether that comes from, as you would say, the um, the picture, which is it is memorable, it is something that is is parodied and replicated by lots of others. Um, even to the point where, um, is there not a story that when um, EMI uh, moved headquarters, they made sure that they actually replicated the staircase in in the in the new building. Don't know if that's apocryphal or not. Um, but it, you know there can only be one reason why that would have been done or been talked about, and that's that album cover. Um, you couldn't have had uh, something like the Ruttles. Um, if it hadn't have been for the explosion that occurred with with Please Please Me, and I know that the Rattles is something that that you want to go on and, and mention in a moment, you know. So whether or not we would have taken a, a couple of tracks out of Please Please Me, yeah, okay. P.S. I Love You would would you know it would have been a been a good start. You know you could lose that, but if you lose it, you might find it again, and that's a particular problem. Um, but what would you have replaced it with that they were performing at the time? Bessame mucho, you know. It, I think it does represent the best of what the Beatles were doing if you look at some of their, their their set lists, and and that's the nature of what this album is. Effectively, it's them performing as live with minimal overdubs because the technology just wasn't there. This is the band in their purest, rawest form. And to use another expression, it works. you listen to through it in in one go and you can see just what they're up to. You can hear the you know the breadth of their influences and although they do lurch into the old um, you know guitarist coming around to interrupt your meal um, element from from time to time, you can see that they are based in in rock. And they are based in some of the um, the really important, influential black artists of the time uh, in America, which is quite far-reaching, um, and is something uh, that, that is then copied by an awful lot of other people. And and if you're being copied by other people, chances are you're doing something right.
0: Yeah. Well. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I sort of sign off on all of that. I, I I completely agree. Um unsurprisingly and you, you kind of mentioned the Ruttles there we haven't mentioned the Ruttles on this podcast yet but I, I this this is our first opportunity and it would be remiss of us I feel to do a Beatles podcast and not come up against the Ruttles at some point because there are few more joyful and and life-affirming and wonderful things in this entire world yeah. than the Rutles uh, even by my own standards I have not one shred of objectivity when it comes to this I utterly love the Ruttles beyond all sort of hope uh, of of, of, of ever, you know, coming down the other side. I just utterly adore them. And that's not an unusual sentiment, I think it's fair to say. Uh, But it's, you know, even... even, when we start to talk about the Ruttles uh, covering this kind of period you've got number 1 and you've got uh, Gustat Mama um one of the weird things about Gustat Mama in particular is that it's it's kind of too good to, to be in a saga please please me which is um uh, a, a little that's uh, not dig it please please me because Neil Ennis is just such a, an unbelievably yeah. gifted individual uh, but like some of the some of the um, wordplay in Gustat Mama um, you know how to reassemble clumsy hands and knees that tremble like Lennon and McCartney weren't writing lyrics that clever in 1963 they'll get onto it absolutely they will but they weren't really uh, writing material of that uh, of that quality and, and number one is just a more straightforward parody of, of twist and shout and it's, it, it's great I really like uh, Gustav Mama it's a really smartly written song and it's it does capture that kind of like you, you said well please please me it's kind of them in their rawest form good step mama is slightly more kind of cavern era uh, rather than um please please me era but it's still pretty much the same thing or at least there's there's significant overlap and it's just such a it's such a lovely kind of tribute to that era i i i just adored it i I'm, i find it utterly captivating
1: <laughs> it's, it's worth pointing out that um a pre uh, well i suppose this is the circularity of it if 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 I was to then ask you um, name one band from the last twenty or thirty years who most often been, um, I suppose referred to as as a, trying to be Beatles clones, you'd probably end up with Oasis. Yeah, you'd that's, probably that's probably fair and, enough. And um, I, I think it's quite interesting that um, one of one of Oasis' better songs, uh, which was a standalone single, hey. Much like the Beatles, uh, which is whatever, um, now carries a um, a co-writing credit for Neil Innes, not because it, it blatantly rips off um, a Rutles song, but it's actually a pre-Rutles song from '73. Uh, How sweet to be an idiot. The melody was was effectively lifted f- uh, from that. So you you've got a band famed for their their Beatles well attempts to be Beatles-esque. Um, in, in so many ways um, who have basically ripped off the guy who then went on to deliberately parody the Beatles and, and that kind of logic um, can quite easily see you disappear into a puff
0: of dust. Well, it actually goes further than that because on, um, on the Ruttles archaeology, um, the song uh, Shangri-La, Contains a musical quote from whatever. It's got the d d d d d d line in it, so it actually comes round three hundred and sixty degrees back to that, which is just a lovely, uh, a lovely little thing. It, it, I, I'm, i led to believe that it was meant um, uh, fondly rather than as a. Haha, gotcha. Oh, um yeah. which, which sounds like Neil Anissi. You know, he was a lovely guy. Yeah, um, I've,
1: I've heard lots of lots of interviews um, with him over the last. I mean. I've listened to them in the last couple of years. He obviously didn't do them in the last couple of years, what with, you know, not being around anymore. Um, But, um, yeah, he just seems like this genuinely um, interesting, fun, lively person who was interested in all the things that you're interested in, i.e. melody. Um, And, you know, his ability to retrospectively create a a Beatles-esque back catalogue it's, it's just phenomenal, um, you know. And I kind of wish he'd, he'd maybe had a, a bit more of a go at fleshing out some of those a little bit more. I mean, it's a shame that that he might now be more famous for the ruttles than for for some of the the things he would have done himself, because he was absolutely wonderfully um, you know gifted. And was he not one of the um, one of the few, if not the only, non Monty Python to receive a, a writing credit on Monty Python's Flying Circus as well. Admittedly, I think in in one of the the later series after you know John Cleese had gone and and Graham Chapman needed someone to write with. I I th-
0: I don't I know that he's in it. I don't want to say for one hundred percent. I thought Douglas Adams also might have point, had a writing mate. credit. <laughs> yeah, as no, well. that's that's um, But certainly, if, if 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 he's not the only one, he's essentially the only one. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to mention the Bonzos as well because um, yeah. they are just such fun to listen to. Gorilla's a fantastic album um there's lots of really just great material on that um so yeah you're right i mean in a way it's a shame that it, it, i say it's a shame he obviously got such pleasure from the ruttles as well they were touring again you know the whole the whole thing and um he seemed very happy that it had brought him uh, that had brought him Kind of the attention and that it's brought such joy to to kind of other people's lives and, and I'm one of the people that it's brought such joy to. It's it's just such a such a glorious thing. But you're right. It is worth highlighting just what a gifted individual Neil Innes was.
1: So sure. I wonder then, um, because I think part of the, the the popularity of the Ruttles was effectively um, because there was a period where you know there was no Beatles. So you know something that sounds like the Beatles, even in a in you know like a comedy context if it's got those essential elements, it's is going to be quite popular. And and I think for many years, McCartney didn't play a huge amount from his uh, Beatles back catalogue. I think it was only towards the the late 80s that I seem to remember that that, that started to to kick in a little bit more. Um, you know, but even then, I'm, I'm sort of thinking, well, does he play much from Please Please Me? And wouldn't it sound a little bit odd if um, Sir Paul McCartney in his dotage was singing Well, She Was Just 17?, and you know what I mean I mean I, I can't think what else from the album that's his that, that he would play and he doesn't play a huge amount of non um, McCartney Lennon and McCartney songs in his, his live set does he or am I missing something here?
0: No well a couple of things um, Wings Over America was the first time that he started performing Beatles songs out with the band so that was that's I think Wings Over America, seventy six, if I remember correctly. So he had started doing it, but it wasn't it wasn't really a major component of his his set. I I saw McCartney in nineteen ninety in in Glasgow in the Glasgow Exhibition Centre, which is when he did that Get Back to Glasgow and Let It Be Liverpool, and that was kind of like I think that was kind of the first time that he did any Lennon songs. I think he did Strawberry Fields. I want to say in my life and something else I think he did two or three Lennon numbers that, and that that was the first time he had ever played those kind of songs and he does still basically not do that and I I I'm sure he I'm sure he's played something at some point as well but I don't think he really does anything from George either I'm 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 gonna. I'm not a I'm not a Paul McCartney live uh, encyclopedia but I'm going to go ahead and guess that he's never played Don't Pass Me By live um, so we could probably <laughs> <laughs> we can probably politely uh, I still like don't pass for light uh fucking still probably politely put Ringo to one side for that. Um so yeah, so there's definitely still stuff mixed in there. But I mean you know, he's, but he's, he's not going to be doing ride.
1: chains or "PS I Love You." Or... I
0: think that's probably a safe bet. Although, if if our listeners want to um, get in touch with us and and correct us on this point, then 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 please feel free uh, to do so. And I know that things like the Amoeba gig, he dug out a couple of old numbers, and there's been a few occasions where he's kind of gone into slightly more deeper cuts in his his back catalog, which is. Uh, uh, not just from Beatles stuff, from from uh, from solo stuff as well, which is always, you know, encouraging. It, but yeah, there must be only so many times you can play Get Back before you you kind of, you know, think, oh well, I don't know, maybe I'll play Here Today today or something, you know, something to to shake things up a wee bit. But yeah, if anybody wants to write in and contradict us, please, please feel free to to do so. But I do agree with you. There can't be there can't be much else from Please Please Me that gets that gets dragged out.
1: I. I was watching some um, McCartney just clips of McCartney live performances um, a few weeks ago and and something that struck me as being you know potentially a bit odd and he I mean, has his often has his trademark Hofner bass or varieties thereof um, and sort I thinking well actually for someone who is such a talented instrumentalist and for someone who didn't really want to be the bass player I'm kind of surprised that he still plays the bass for significant portions of his his live sets i think you well, know i've got the
0: chance now yeah, screw that
1: everyone <laughs> i'm getting a <the> guitar up.
0: <laughs> well there is a thing in um in the uh, uh mark Lucian book the um the, the first volume of of his epic yeah you know lord Library of the shelf worrying yeah. <laughs> yeah biography of the whole band where um mccartney um had some gig with the quarry man where he was meant to come up and do like the big guitar solo he fluffed it and went well bugger that i'm never doing it again i'll just i'll stick to rhythm and then eventually bass so it may it may just be something as simple as that that you know once that's your instrument that's your instrument
1: yeah yeah although you know the further you get into that book you, you sort of also realize that, that um and there's a link back to to the album here that you know the, his equipment um, may also have been a reason because I think Lennon and Harrison were able, if I remember correctly from, from the book, were able on HP to uh, to get hold of, of better guitars. Yeah. So effectively, because McCartney's guitar was a bit shit, it was a case of, oh, well, you can play the bass now. think, oh, 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 okay, all right. Um, so, you
0: know... Um, well, and even then, the Hofner bass is visually distinctive, but it's not a really good bass guitar. It's 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 pretty light as as an actual instrument, so yeah. it's it's still. But I'm, of course, the visual impact of it is 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 kind of far more significant in terms of the look.
1: And I can I can remember, um, I think it was around the time that Flowers in the Dirt was was released, where he made a big thing of returning uh, to the Hofner bass, as though yeah. it was somehow um, deeply symbolic of you know his link to the Beatles. Um, and yet, you know, it, if, as you say, it's it's not a particularly great bass guitar, I say well done him for for sticking with it and and plugging them throughout. Um, but the reason you know it links to to the album is, of course, um, you know, if the other members of the group were able to purchase things on 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 the old HP, well, actually, that's also how a lot of young people would have bought their their record players. As well, rather than than buying something outright, you know the same would go for for families and their their televisions as well. Um, so you know to to then have committed a particular amount of money on a regular basis to buying the equipment with which you um, are buying uh, are listening to your records might not have left a huge amount of money to um, to actually buy the damn thing in the first place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can hear, I mean, when it comes to the Hofner bass, you can hear the difference um, very distinctly when McCartney eventually moves over to Rickenbacker, which I think is, oh, 65, I want to say. Um, and you can you can suddenly hear, like, the bass is suddenly a much bigger component um, in the in the Beatles' back catalogue. And, and if all you're doing is kind of slogging around these... Kind of joyless live gigs in in America or Australia or the Philippines, you know. Then you know that like the, it, it, I mean, he could have been playing a tea chest at that point for all the for all the band could have been uh, heard over those audiences. So you know, it's only once once we things become much more studio focused that 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 starts to change. But no, yeah, I mean, you're quite right. Quality of the instruments has a has a big impact on it.
1: And and these these are kids themselves who are recording and releasing this album. And and I think that is then quite that combined with Brian Epstein's knowledge of of selling records um, you know through through nems in Liverpool he was damn good at that you know he was yeah, in terms of his his business capability really hit the ground once he started understanding the record market and what people would buy. Um, you can then see the significance of that because you've got please please me and you've got love me do on this album. But obviously, after that, we're going to go on and talk about, um, you know, a couple more singles, and naturally they start—or rather, they stop appearing on the album. You know, it's a very significant moment, isn't it? You know, "I Want to Hold Your Hand" um, and um, "She Loves You," uh, for example, about them not appearing on on albums, but actually being released at similar times to the albums. You know because there's that they quickly get that sense of, well, you know, if we were buying these records, we might feel a little bit ripped off if we then had to buy this particular single in a different um, in, in two different formats. If it's on the album, it, you know, it's taking up space that we could then provide um, other songs to fill. So, um, you know, there's that sense that the, the economic conditions of the time are linked quite heavily to, and, and the things that they had experienced as well, are then linked quite heavily to the way in which they go about their business. You could argue that that's, that's Brian Epstein's you know, canny understanding of, of what people will and won't buy. But you can also see that there's, there's the Beatles at that point going, well, you know what, we'd feel a bit ripped off if this was something that we were buying. So I, th- I think it's worth giving them a little bit of praise um, for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree. And, of course, the, the whole thing becomes more complicated once you start factoring in those American releases as well, which generally yeah. tended to have a whole couple of tracks um, fewer and those, you know, introducing the Beatles and those those first sort of handful of, of American releases before uh, they become standardised in 66.
1: But, but um, that's also then linked to, to the way in which it took a long time for the American record labels to... Um, to really see that they were a marketable product. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Which, obviously, EMI in the UK were were quick to pick up on. But on the other hand, there actually it was a subsidiary in America who were far too independent for their own good, just kept throwing it back. It, it actually got quite hard to find labels that would release Beatles albums and Beatles singles um, in America, hence why they were mucked about over there and and you know it can get really quite confusing so American listeners please please me one whole album okay yeah that's fine yeah go on wikipedia wikipedia will put you right
0: <laughs> the standard repository of our knowledge and wisdom
1: absolutely you could go into which songs you know I mean bear in mind it's it's half an hour's worth of music in about 14 tracks you know to then start taking songs out you know it seems a little bit of an an injustice it's, um, you know, look, it's taut, it's it's packed with really good stuff. If it gets a little bit flabby in a couple of places, you have to say, so what? At least there's no Mr. Moonlight on it. No, uh, that's
0: I'm, I'm really looking forward to a Mr. Moonlight discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already thinking that's going to be one of my favourite episodes of doing this.
1: I, I think it's one of those things that, that, you know, the Sergeant Pepper gets talked about in terms of its cultural significance, but you can't have Sergeant Pepper without
0: Please, Please, Me. <laughs> I completely agree and that feels like an absolutely perfect note to wrap things up on Um, yeah let's uh, let's let's tie it off there Um, given that this album was just fractionally over uh, half an hour long and we've now been talking for an hour and ten minutes I think we've done a a staggering job <laughs> in dragging this out. So let us drag it out no longer and, and wrap stuff up there. Uh, you can contact us uh, by email. We are uh, Beatles Stuffology at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at beetles underscore ology. And you can find more of my writing at www.jgmcquarie.scot. Please like, rate and review us on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show. Especially, of course, if you live in Sweden and or Mexico. Next episode we are going to be covering She Loves You and we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep listening.